If you have your copies of God's Word, over, to turn them to Mark chapter 8. Uh, Mark chapter 8. Uh, as, you, as you look at this, and as was just read for us in those first ten chapters, I want to start by saying, so tell me if you've heard this one before, right? <laughs> uh, you, sometimes you start conversations that way, as we start a story or something like that. Uh, it is fascinating as Mark 8 opens that you read this and go, now wait a minute, I feel like I saw this only two chapters ago, and you're right, you did. It was a little different, but it basically the same idea. Notice how it presents itself with all the same uh, ideas. Verse 1, here is a great crowd following Jesus. We've seen that over and over and over again. No matter where Jesus goes, great crowds are following after him. In seeing great crowds, what is Jesus' typical response? He has compassion for the crowds. And here you see that in verse 2 as he is moved and seeing all the people that have been following him for the past three days. And he even says, they've been with me now these three days. Verse 2, they have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And so Jesus isn't just simply moved in heart toward the people, but is expressing that he does not want them to go away empty. And we have noted through Mark's Gospel that this is not just merely a concern of the physical, that Jesus is going to send them away spiritually full. That's why they've been following Jesus for three straight days. And they're in the wilderness again. They're in this desolate place. They're in the middle of nowhere uh, yet again. And notice that it even says that they've come from far away. Uh, We have an indication that this is probably an inclusion in this crowd of not only Jews, but also Gentiles this time. Where we left off in chapter 7, Jesus was over in Tyre and Sidon, and then he crosses out to the Decapolis, which is where we had last left him. That, along with saying these people have come from far away, gives us an interesting picture that we may have a strong mixture of Jews and Gentiles this time who have been following and listening and learning as Jesus has been proclaiming the good news. Now, in seeing this, I think it is interesting as everything sets up the same as the feeding of the 5,000 in chapter 6. Compassion on the crowds. We don't want to send them away empty. We need to feed them. And what would you expect then the disciples to do in hearing Jesus start talking like this? Would we not expect the disciples to go... I remember what you did last time. Let's do that again. (laughs) But you'll notice in verse 4, the disciples answer, How can one feed these people with bread here in a desolate place? (laughs) Pretty much the exact same answer as last time, as we saw at the feeding of the 5,000. I think it is fascinating that they have the exact same reaction with the exact same setup with all of the same parameters of a large crowd in fact quite a bit less of a crowd and Jesus introducing it all with the same saying well I've got compassion and we need to feed them and I'm not going to send them away empty that here the disciples have the same response now I suppose that we ought not be surprised 
Because if you remember how the feeding of the 5,000 ended, Mark records what would have been, I think, for us as we looked at it, fairly troubling and shocking words and saying that the disciples' hearts were hard and that they could not understand the miracle of the loaves. That was in chapter 6, verse 52. And so they didn't understand at that time. They didn't understand what Jesus was showing. The miracle was just simply a miracle. They did not get the spiritual understanding of exactly what Jesus was trying to accomplish. And so what you have being displayed here is this spiritual dullness. It is the big idea that you see in this paragraph is that we are going to see all kinds of different people remaining as spiritually blind and spiritually dull. Here the miracle is going to present itself a second time. It's another group. We're in the wilderness. And notice that the disciples' reaction hasn't changed. It is not, we learn from the first time. We know what you're going to do. This is going to be great. Get everybody to sit down. He's going to do something. Same response. As they declare, how are we going to be able to feed all these people in this wilderness? Now, the reason why that also should not be surprising, if you've journeyed on Sunday night with us as we had gone through the book of Numbers, you might recognize the replay value of that. Remember when Israel is in the wilderness and they are clamoring for food and God provides for them, the next time they run out of food, do they go, well, we remember what God did last time and we don't have to worry, everybody. We know that He'll provide food and water that we need. So everybody just wait for God to provide it. (laughs) No, it's the same response again of spiritual dullness. Well, we we don't know what's going to happen. They're brought ready to kill Moses and Aaron and go back to Egypt and you've brought us out here to die and all the same parameters are laid out and still you see the same spiritual dullness, the same spiritual blindness. Over and over again, you are getting this picture of a lack of belief that God will provide in the wilderness in the Old Testament. And now there is the belief that Jesus is not going to provide in the wilderness here as he's walking the earth. All of the situation and all of the pictures are set before us again. And yet the response is exactly the same. It's fairly troubling and I hope that we would just kind of consider for a moment that as as we might want to read about these disciples and go, man, I cannot believe you guys couldn't figure that out, what Jesus was about to do. Or when you read the book of Numbers and you think, I cannot believe that those people in the wilderness would act like that. I mean, He gave you manna from heaven. Why would you doubt that He would do, not do it again? Or when they are out of water, why wouldn't you believe that God would do it again? Have we ever had God rescue us in the past and then completely doubted His rescuability in the future? I dare say we walk the same path in the wilderness as they do so many times. Is that as God comes and delivers through the difficulty that we face, how often we forget that we have a compassionate God who desires to give to us. In fact, notice, I think, again, that the key point that was in chapter 6 with the feeding of the 5,000 is laid out here in chapter 8 and verse 8, that they all ate and notice they were satisfied. This is what God has come to do, that God is bringing satisfaction. Now, you will notice that it seems like this miracle stops short. It just kind of ends in verse 10 very abruptly. Yet Mark does not want you to stop there, even 
though in my Bible I think I have three more big bold headers in the way that are trying to stop me from keep going. But you'll notice Mark is going to tie all of this in and direct to this miracle all the way out to verse 26. And so that's where we have to go to see the whole picture of what is happening. Notice how Mark now turns and sends his attention to a different group of people. Verse 11. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. He sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them and got in the boat again and went to the other side. So now the Pharisees come along and they say, we want a sign. We want to see some big things. And I want to underscore to you, it's not that the Pharisees haven't seen any miracles. That goes all the way back to chapter 3. They have recognized that Jesus is performing these signs. He is doing miracles and they are not able to deny it. That's not what they're asking. This is not a legitimate, hey, we think we might want to be a follower of you and believe in you, but please confirm for us that you're truly from God. That's not what this is. No, it even specifies there in verse 11 that they are arguing with him and are then wanting a sign to test him. What they are desiring to do is to get Jesus to prove himself on their terms. We want you to do what we want you to do. You know, these other miracles that you're doing, okay, fine, well, and good. But we want to see a sign from heaven. We want to see a sign that we demand that would be convincing to us. I want you to think about what they're asserting. Is the way you're doing it is not going to work for me, but if you will come and do a sign on our terms, what we are looking for, what we desire, what will work for us, then maybe we'll consider this. And notice that Jesus just outright rejects that. Jesus does not go, well, okay, I'll give you what you're looking for, that you'll finally be believers in me. You know, it's a big warning in that. It's not about giving what the world thinks they need to be able to be a follower of God. Here they're like, oh, this is what we want. Jesus goes, I don't care. He just sighs and goes, I'm not going to give you the sign you're looking for. In fact, remember the Apostle Paul even notes that and saying, what are the Jews always wanting? Some kind of sign. It's some kind of testing. It's not that they are legitimately seeking. They are using the need for a sign as a reason why they're not going to follow. You are not going to do what we want you to do. Therefore, we will not follow you. Give us the sign that we want. Give us what we need on our terms. And we have seen in our study of Mark's gospel again and again that Jesus is never doing miracles for the wow factor. He's never doing it to dazzle people that simply just sit back and go, wow, that was really amazing. I'm really stunned that you could do something like that. That's never the idea. Jesus is not a circus act. That's not what he's going around doing is trying to draw big crowds by doing something really amazing and really something special. What you're seeing these people saying, these Pharisees, is we just want more evidence. It's not that we want to believe. We're not truly seeking. We just want you to give us more evidence. Just just give us what we are looking for. Give us what we want. Give us what we desire. 
And I was strongly tempted to preach a whole sermon on those three verses, and I'm probably going to get pretty close to it anyway, because this is a huge issue right here. I call this consumer Jesus right here. I want Jesus to do what I want. I'm involved with Jesus for what he can do for me. That's the only reason the Pharisees come to him. Here's what we want. Do what we want. If you will just give us what we are looking for, well, then we'll consider you. Then we will seek you. Then we will follow you. This is consumer Jesus. What we can get out of him. Do what I want you to do and show yourself to me. And I hope that you'll see that what you see these Pharisees are attempting to do is that they are basically trying to get Jesus to submit to them. If you just boil that scene now, let's get Jesus to submit to our will. Get him to do what we want. We will get him to match our desires. And so that's what they are arguing with him. And they are pressing him to conform to what they want Jesus to be and what they want Jesus to do. And I I dare say that we need to really consider the warning of why we are following Jesus. Is the reason we follow Jesus because... It is some sort of selfish pursuit of getting God to submit to us. Here is what I want God to do for me. Here's what he should do for my life. And only if these parameters are fulfilled, then that's how I'm going to follow him. I would say there are probably two big areas where we often will hear that. Number one, in how we evaluate worship. How often is a discussion of worship framed in terms of what I got out of it? Right? Well, I didn't get an awful lot out of that. That wasn't really encouraging to me. That didn't really build me up. That wasn't what I needed. That is consumer Jesus. What I get out of it. Not thinking about what is God receiving out of what we are doing. We do the parameters of Bible study and worship and the various acts of worship squarely in terms of if it's valuable to me. And if I don't get anything out of it, then I don't need to be there. It doesn't do any good for me. I don't need to participate in that because it's all about what I get out of it. That is putting God in submission to you. What you want, what you desire, what you think is best, rather than the parameters of this is who God is, and are you going to submit to Him and follow Him? That's why you have to love Jesus' response. Jesus' response is, no, (laughs) I'm not doing that. I don't care what you think you want. I am God. You follow me. It's not about me coming and doing what you want. It's about us coming to him and doing what he wants. And oh, how worship today is evaluated 
in such physical, secular, selfish terms. What I get out of it. What I enjoy. What I find comfortable. What I find amazing. What I find helpful rather than what we are giving to God. And I'd also say perhaps the other place where we really find consumer Jesus is in terms of the way we make our prayers and requests. Well, since God didn't answer my prayer, I'm not going to serve Him anymore. God did not do what I asked. I prayed. I asked Him to do X, Y, and Z. He didn't do that, so I don't even know why I bother. Consumer Jesus. He again is your McDonald's drive through and He didn't give you what you were looking for, and so now you reject. That's what the Pharisees are doing. We're not going to follow you on your terms. Yeah, I know you fed 5,000 and 4,000 and you've been doing all these miracles, but we want a sign from heaven. <laughs> and Jesus is like, what are you thinking? Do you think I just perform for you? Do you think I am the pinata in heaven and as your prayers are beating on the pinata, he just rains his candy goodies on you? Do you think that's what God is? And so often we treat God that way. Well, I asked, so he should have done what I said. And if he won't do what I say, and if he won't do what I pray for, why am I in this? We need to really challenge the thinking of consumer Jesus. Are you in it for you? Or are you in it for God? And it's very easy to turn the worship and service and life of following Jesus into consumerism. And it's all about me, and it's all about what I get. Jesus is not our personal idol. Jesus is not our closet idol that gives us whatever we ask whenever we come to our own particular desires and needs and whims and wants. He is the almighty creator God to whom we submit and bow the knee and worship because that's who he is. The response of Jesus here is powerful. He says, no sign, gets in the boat and leaves. Because you don't want true Jesus. Ultimately, you're blind and do not see. But now notice how this moves back into the scene. Verse 14, now they had forgotten to bring bread and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. You can imagine as this whole scene unfolds and the Pharisees are arguing with him and confronting Jesus. Give us a sign from heaven. Prove yourself. Meet us in our place. Meet us in our demands. And Jesus says, I'm not going to have any part of that. Gets in the boat with his disciples and Jesus turns to his disciples and says, I want you to watch out for that kind of thinking. Beware of the Pharisees. Beware of that leaven. Beware of the leaven of Herod. We know what Herod's going to do. What is Herod going to want? We finally read it later on in the Gospels. He always wants a sign, right? Same problem. Be my circus act. Do what I want. So he's warning his disciples, watch out for that kind of thinking. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and beware of the leaven of Herod. Look at verse 16. And they begin discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. So here's Jesus saying, you need to really pay attention because, man, the, the leaven of the Pharisees will get you. And they go, man, we forgot leaven. We forgot bread. Man, guys, who, who was in charge of the bread today? 
We've been out here for days. I cannot believe that you left the bread. Somebody go swim back and get that. I mean, come on. Isn't this stunning? Here is Jesus in the midst of critical teaching about their, their, their souls, about their faith, about what could be transpiring and how they come before Jesus. And their response is, oh, yeah, leaven, that's right. You know, we, we forgot bread. Listen to Jesus in verse 17. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see? Having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the five thousand? How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, twelve. And the seven for the four thousand. How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? (laughs) We forgot the bread. What are you guys talking about? (laughs) Why is this discussion going on? And notice Jesus just lays it out to his disciples, to his twelve. You have eyes, but you're not seeing. You have ears and you're not hearing. You are missing the whole spiritual point of the discussion. The whole thing. We do that. What happens is we get so stuck in our world that we become blind and deaf to God. That here is God trying to teach us something so monumental, so important. And by a word or a phrase, we kind of go squirrel and start thinking about physical things instead of zeroing in on what God's really trying to teach us. It happens a lot. It happens a lot. It's easy to do. So I was in a gospel meeting a a, a while back, and I was teaching actually out of the text that, that Frank read for us this morning about those going on the mountain and communing with God, and they saw God. The guy refused to come back to the gospel meeting the rest of the week because no one has seen God at any time, according to John. Uh, Yes, I know. But Exodus 24 does say (laughs) twice they saw God. And you just get stuck. It's like, well, there's something right there. And you're just stuck. And you can't move through. Well, what's the spiritual point? What's the big message? We can do that so easily where we just get stuck on something. Jesus said the word leaven and they were gone. (laughs) Bread. Oh, we forgot the bread. Everything else, they just lost everything else. They didn't focus on anything else that was being said. They missed everything Jesus was trying to do. And the reason why that happens is because we get so focused into the physical Here are the disciples. They're anxious about physical bread and Jesus is concerned for their souls. A huge difference. Here's Jesus. Your faith is in trouble. And the disciples are talking about what are we going to do? We left the bread behind. What are we going to do with that? And here's Jesus going, how much did we take up when we did the last two miracles? That's your concern? Have you forgotten Who I am, do you not yet understand? And yet this is the big problem. 
is that we are so stuck in the flesh that we so think spiritually that we fail to see our spiritual needs and we fail to see what Jesus is trying to do in our lives. We just fail to see it. We fail to see the big picture. We fail to look deeply, to truly consider what God is trying to accomplish for us. Instead, we get stuck in the bread of the physical rather than the spiritual bread that God is offering. Now watch how this plays out into this final paragraph, and then we'll tie all these things together this morning. Verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida in verse 22, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. I want you to think about what Jesus does in this miracle. Here is a miracle that you want to talk about spiritual blindness of how people have approached this miracle. <laughs> Because this is a challenging one, right? Here's Jesus, here's this blind man, pulls him aside, spits on his eyes, lays his hand on him. And notice how different this miracle now starts. He asks a question, do you see? Do you see anything? And he goes, kind (laughs) of, right? Kind of. I see some people kind of look like trees, kind of vaguely. And then Jesus puts his hands on him again, and now he can see. So did Jesus need, you know, he kind of missed the optometrist's mark, and, uh, you know, he at least could see, but, you know, he needed to, you know, you know, go in and get the goggles over, you know, you know, A or B, you know, yes or no, one or two. Oh, oh, I, obviously this is with purpose, Right. Jesus can heal perfectly, instantly. The point here is not, well, he needed a two-step process to be able to do this. There is something that's being said in this miracle. There is something huge, something valuable that is being said by Jesus. Why would he do it like that? Why, with great intention, would he do it in a process? Why get him to see vaguely, somewhat faintly, in a blurry fashion, and then see clearly? In fact, notice how verse 25 underscores what happened in the miracle. He opened his eyes, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. That's three different ways to say that. Opened his eyes, sight restored, seen clearly. There's a purpose in the partial healing. And I submit to you what these 26 verses are attempting to do is to show the big picture of really these are the spiritual conditions that Jesus is working with. First condition we've seen. It was the condition of the Pharisees. Blind. Simply cannot see anything that Jesus is doing. 
unable to see what Jesus is about. Jesus is consumer Jesus. Jesus is what I get out of Him. What I need, what I want. That is spiritual blindness. You are completely closed off to the Lord. And I just want us to ask ourselves this morning if we may be in that condition. Is the reason that we may be here today is not because of what we want to give to God, but what we believe we will get from God. Some personal, tangible benefit that we will receive. Maybe you come because you think God will not barbecue you if you go ahead and come every Sunday. And that's the reason why you come. Or you think I'm funny or entertaining or some terrible reason like that to come. Or maybe you think uh, I'm here out of habit and obligation. I know on Sunday morning this is what I always do and it would just feel strange to not go worship somewhere. There's often so many different reasons that people come up with why they attend on Sunday morning somewhere. And these are terrible reasons because it is that spiritually blind reason. I'm doing it for my own self. It has nothing to do with God. It has to do with my fear of hell or, you know, I'm, just, I just, I'm quelling my comfort and what else would I do on Sunday morning? Or, you know, you're a pretty uh, fiery guy and I like listening to fiery guys or, you know, whatever it is. We cannot miss everything by making God about us. Jesus is not our personal problem solver. Jesus is not the one that if you come to him, he'll make your life all better and everything will be hunky-dory and you'll have your best life now and you'll have more money and you'll have more cars and you know all that kind of stuff that gets pushed out there today. That is consumer Jesus. We need to really evaluate why are we here? What are we doing? What is the purpose? Jesus identifies it is blindness when we're here for ourselves. Personally, physically, what I get out of it. Not what I'm going to give God. Notice now you're given a second condition. You can see but not clearly. It's not just blind and see. There's a middle condition that comes out of this. Jesus wants him to express it. Jesus does this miracle and then specifically asks, what do you see? Eyesight check. How'd that go? I see, but not like I ought to see. I do not see clearly. This represents the disciples in this scene. They've been with Jesus. They're seeing the miracles. They're not like the Pharisees who are following strictly for selfish purposes, but they don't see clearly. This is what he's laid out to them. I've been with you. We did this miracle the first time. How many low fragments were picked back up? Do you not yet understand? Are you not seeing clearly who I am? You're not in the condition of totally blind, but you're not seeing me clearly. You are not understanding. And even though, think about how these disciples have begun this journey with Jesus and they are following Jesus, they still have so much to learn, don't they? 
They're in process. They're not all the way there. In fact, isn't that why we like reading the disciples of the Gospels? We identify with them. We like Peter saying the stuff that we think. (laughs) When the scene happened, we go, yeah, I I identify with that. Because their faith is in process. They are following Jesus, but they lack understanding. They are following Jesus, but they are still spiritually dull. And I think it is important for us to recognize that there is good news that is being laid out here. The good news is that you're not expected to have perfect spiritual clarity from the moment you decide to follow Jesus. It's not going to happen. You're going to follow Jesus and now I understand it perfectly. I wish. (laughs) Oh, you've just started a journey of understanding who Jesus is. You're beginning the process. You see Him, but you see Him fuzzy. And as you begin to come to Him more and more and more, and understand Him and love Him and grow with Him, you're going to see clearly in a greater way. The good news is we're part of this process that we aren't going to have that perfect spiritual clarity right away. But here's the rest of that story. You cannot be satisfied with seeing Him in a blurry way. You ever imagine going to the eye doctor? I do that. You don't, if you don't know, I have contact lenses because I'd fall off the stage otherwise. I'm so blind. Uh, can you imagine going to the eye doctor? And you know he does one, two, A, B, all that. And he goes, well, you know, you can you, at least you can see the E. I know the other stuff is kind of blurry, but you know, 60% vision is pretty good. And you'd walk out there and go, you're right, that's great. Let's, that, that, thank you, here's my $100, let's, let's go. And who would ever do that and go, yeah, blurry vision is fine because at least I'm not blind. You know, nobody has ever walked out of an optometrist saying that. Well, at least he gave, helped me see a little bit better. What is the expectation? Man, I sit in that chair until I can knock out 2020. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll freeze with them. Like, you'll do one and two, and I'm like, ooh, that's close. Do that again. Because I want to get that just right. I want to be able to see. Friends, that's what we're supposed to do with the Lord. That we would never be satisfied. Well, at least it's kind of blurry. You know, that's all right. That's not bad, right? At least I'm not blind like all those people. I can at least kind of see. Don't settle for that. Your blurry vision is fine, but don't accept it. You are in process. You are to be growing in faith. This is what the miracle is representing. He starts off blind. He moves to blurry vision and now moves to perfect vision. That's why I underscored the three things. Where you need to be is your eyes are opened Your sight is restored and you can see clearly. Three different ways he says it. That's the mark. That's the goal. Sight. Don't be discouraged if you're blurry. But you need to be discouraged if you've allowed it to stay that way. Do not allow your vision of Jesus to stay cloudy. These disciples are disciples. And I want to underscore one thing with them. Jesus does not come up to them and go, I can't believe you don't understand yet. Get out of my sight. I need 12 new guys. 
I mean, if you can't figure out the first time I did the 5,000, you can't see it the second time, what am I doing with you? He doesn't do that. He challenges them. Are you still not seeing? Why aren't you seeing? Why aren't you understanding? Why don't you have clarity yet? I understand you started there, but why are you still there? You need to see Jesus clearly. That's the goal that is put before us. As we end the lesson, I just want to ask you then where you are on the journey because this is what Jesus has come to do. This is the miracle of faith that is occurring that first we are blind. And Jesus has come so that we can see. And too often we are satisfied with a very blurry view of our Lord. That we are content just seeing the shadows and the outlines. We have not spent the time that we need to spend to be able to see Jesus clearly. But you would ask yourself this morning, how clearly do you see Jesus? How clearly do you see eternity in your life? How clearly do you see your spiritual life? How clearly do you see your spiritual condition before God? It is so easy to allow the blurry vision to maintain because what do we do? We move Jesus back into consumer Jesus. What do I get out of this? Well, if I read my Bible today, that's not as exciting as watching Survivor. So I think I'm going to watch Survivor. You know, we, 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 we make consumer Jesus. The reason we don't see clearly is we don't put the intensity and the desire of why we need to see him. And since we don't think we're getting any big benefit out of it, we pick everything else in the world instead of seeing them clearly. Evaluate your life today. Think about where you are in your walk with Him. Think about what you can do going forward on this week that you can refine your sight to draw closer to Him, to see Him as you ought to see Him, as He wants to be seen. That He wants you to see Him with that perfect vision. The Word of God is given to us so that you and I can all have that sight. That is not something that is unattainable. You do not have to maintain blurry vision, but it requires a dedication to loving the Lord and seeing Him as He is. I encourage you to do that. If you're not a Christian, we want you to come to Him, to come out of the darkness and into the light, to follow Him with all of your heart, to confess your sins to Him and be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins. And if you've been walking in in this life and you continue to see him blurry and you have not been moving forward, we want to help you in your walk. We want to help you become a more faithful follower of him. Anyway, we can help you. Why don't you come now while we stand and while we sing?